listening to Popcorn Podcast with Lee and Tim. And in this week's episode, we're bringing you two reviews, Girls Can't Surf and Crisis, plus all the latest movie and trailer news. I'm Timmy Fland, movie buff. And I'm Lee Livingstone, entertainment journalist. And we love to talk all things movies. And this week, we're going to kick things off with our review of the documentary film Girls Can't Surf. Girls can surf, Tim. They absolutely can. And the movie tells an inspiring story about the trailblazing group of women surfers in the 80s and 90s who fought for inclusion, recognition and equality and changed pro surfing forever. Now, the film is directed by Christopher Nellius and he's a Sydney-based director of actor award-winning doco Storm Surfers 3D. So he's got a lot of experience in this world Mm. in bringing this kind of story together. The writers are Julianne DeRuvo and Christopher Nelius, and it stars a whole heap of amazing women, doesn't it? Lisa Anderson, Lane Beachley, Wendy Botha, Pam Burridge, Jodie Cooper, Pauline Mensah, Frida Zamba. Oh, amazing. The list goes on. It's an extraordinary list of incredible Australian and international female athletes, isn't it? And it just hooks you right in from the beginning, doesn't it? That punk music that just hits you as soon as you sit down and the infuriating statements. I mean, throughout the film, mm. they use real footage of men surfers saying things like, oh, the women just aren't as good as men. Get lost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Bugger off. And, mm. and what transpires over the life of the film is how utter nonsense that is. Of course, we Mm. all knew it, but following this story about how wrong people's perception on female sport in general, obviously with the lens of surfing, uh, it's just extraordinary that people had that attitude Mm. uh, and discrimination against the genders in this sport. Right up until recently, and I mean, it still happens to some Mm. degree, but one of the examples they showed in the documentary that was just so infuriating and riled me up so much was that they say the girls just aren't as exciting to watch. But they put them out in the worst conditions. They saved their heats for the worst times and saved the best conditions for the men's competition, which is just, of course, not going to be as exciting to watch. Yeah, the discrimination was literally as black and white as it comes. It was Mm. putting the females out in the worst conditions possible and then judging them as a result of that, but it was a conscious predetermined decision. And weren't you just so infuriated watching Mm. uh, that play out and the decisions being made and the lack of power and influence these women had in the sport that they loved so much and wanted to just get out there and have some Mm. fun and prove what they could do. But they were just, you know, silent. Their voices were not heard. It was just extraordinary. And the disparity in pay was also appalling, something that Mm. didn't actually change until as recently as 2018, 2019, if you can believe that. Mm. Oh, that's just extraordinary. I mean, fantastic that it is the case now, but it's 2021. So it's literally hop, skip and a jump in terms of years ago that that was actually a decision Mm. made to make uh, it equal pay in, in the sport. It's extraordinary. Oh, Lee, you talk about how the opening just hooks you right in. It really mm. did open with such big energy. And the use of archival footage that you mentioned, it, yep. don't you find that it was such a strong support to the women's recounts of events and the coverage that the film includes from the tour over many decades is just mm. extraordinary. And I never thought I'd be yep. so enthralled by archival surfing content. No, yeah. Because I don't know about you, Lee, but... I went into this film knowing nothing 
of surfing or surfing culture. I've heard of Lane Beachley, of course, a very Mm -hmm. iconic, famous Australian surfer, but who hasn't? But, you know, that was about it. But can I tell you, I was absolutely gripped every step of the way watching this film. I could not believe how much fun I was having. And isn't it great getting to know these women as well? I don't know much about surfing either. I mean, I live by the beach, but I'm not a surfer. But getting to know these women who were so down to earth in this Mm. down to earth documentary was so fun. Yeah, it really was. It really was. The film was all about telling the stories and recounting like personal hurdles and experiences and finding that balance between the women's stories was was perfection, I think. And you wanted to hear from each and every one of them. They always left you wanting more. Yep. They always took you back to that woman. They always took you back to that story. They always took you back to that time in surfing. And it was just a, a, a wonderfully, beautifully paced documentary that just had you in the palm of its hand. Yeah, I was enthralled all the way through, absolutely. Mm. And representation of any kind is just so important on screen. There was a quote that I'm not sure which one of the women said it, but if you can't mm. see it, you can't be it. Mm. And just hit me in the feels so so hard. Yeah, I mean, that's a really powerful statement. Absolutely. And you know what I really liked about this film was that 90% of the voices in this film were, were women. There were a few men that recounted stories mm. uh, of their time over the decades on the tour. But it was um, what I loved a lot about this was hearing the women offer opinions of the other female surfers, uh, ones Mm. that were on tour with them or others that they either admired from past tours or in the future. And there was certainly still a very competitive spirit amongst them, wasn't there? Yeah, it's funny you say that because that was one of the things that I wondered reading between the lines, whether they were all always supportive of each other or whether there is that competitiveness. <laughs> they made it seem really fun, but, I mean, reading between the lines, mm. they didn't dig deeper into some of the other layers that fed into this issue because it wasn't just about the fact that they were women. I mean, also mm. during the 80s, homosexuality was obviously a huge deal and some of the women mm. are gay and they were also yeah. dealing with hiding that. So they're having to hide who they are as people mm. and dumb down the fact that they're women, like try and be one of the boys. I mean, it must have been so hard for them and I really would have loved to have dug deeper into that to hear more about that struggle and how they've come through the other side. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, um, and I hear you uh, that you wanted to see to see more, and I think there's a lot of stories that could go much deeper. Absolutely, like mm. if you pull one or two women out of the tour and you got to a retrospective on them in more detail, there'd be a lot of content and incredible uh, story to follow mm. there. But I, I felt like this film did a really good job in at least on the surface exposing how much they endured. And I wrote a few things down here Mm. uh, to rattle off, like they endured bullying, discrimination, Mm. uh, anorexia, some suffered uh, awful, you know, health issues, intimidation, like you mentioned, homophobia. Then they had their own internal turmoil about anger and embarrassment and Mm. self-worth. And then sometimes they touched on substance abuse. And Mm. I mean, I guess it was just trying to encapsulate how like every person's story is different. But then when you look at it from the lens of, of women mm. and everything else that they have to climb to get over just because of their gender is, mm. is uh, extraordinary. And I have so much admiration for these women, but by gosh, they went through a lot, didn't they? 
Absolutely. And I hear what you're saying. So, you know, there was so many things, so many insurmountable things that they, they had mm. to deal with. And if they'd put that all into the documentary, it would have got really heavy. And I think they yes. did a great job of balancing that humour and fun and just energy with some yeah. difficult topics. You know, it made me think. It really made me think. And I hope that a lot of people come out of this feeling enraged to a degree mm -hmm. and also just learning what these women went through and, and seeing how far society has come and how far it still has to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a massive education piece and also should incite some rage or like to put you in this position going, I need to make a difference, be it in the sport that you're part of or just another sector of society that mm. needs to find a balance of equality. Then this film kind of gives you that, I don't know, it gives you a sense of power and ownership for your own mm. life. Lee, you mentioned just before about how funny this is and how they weave humour mm. into the narrative of the story. Like, I re these women are hilarious and I yeah. reckon there are some stand-up comedy careers in and amongst them. <laughs> you know, the flow and timing and sharpness of their wit is what I almost loved most about this film. There was just such a great yeah. general sense of humour about this documentary. Especially with Wendy Botha, she was just down-to-earth Aussie, <laughs> yes. as Aussie as they come. I mean, some of the comments yeah. she came out with were hilarious. She was like, oh, I was so happy that she won, but not really. I was filthy. <laughs> yeah, she was probably <laughs> my favourite. She was definitely my favourite. I loved it. Loved it. But also I have to say Pauline Mensa was a huge inspiration to me. What she went through mm. coming from adversity in her home life. She lost her father when she was very young and obviously yeah. her mother was raising children on her own and, and money was really tight. So she had to just grift her way around the world to be able to do what she loved. And she was doing things like uh, buying cheap jeans in America to sell off somewhere else and just yeah. doing whatever she could anytime she wasn't surfing to be able to pay her way. And then on top of that, she suffered crippling arthritis. Yes. And she won her first title while suffering crippling arthritis. And that was the year that they decided there wasn't any money to give, which, oh my God, I was devastated. Yeah. When that story was playing out, you felt so empowered by her on that tour that year and winning. Yeah. And off the back of all the hustle that you've just listed that she had to mm. do in her life to survive, and then she didn't win a single penny. It was just awful. I mean, this is the kind of adversity that these women were coming up against. And yeah. for people to turn around and just say, oh, well, they're not as entertaining as, as the men. Or, you know, one year they said money was tight. The organisation said money was tight and decided they were going to drop the women's competition. Yes. But keep the bikini competition. Of course. <laughs> Disgraceful. Like, oh, I was just riled up at that. So riled up at that. Like, you know, yeah. watching this documentary, I think any human being with a modicum of decency about them will get fired up about this and just... Yes. Urgh. But then it was so fun. I loved the balance. Yeah. The balance was utter perfection. Yeah. Utter perfection. Well, Lee, what do you reckon? Do you think we are ready to wrap up our review and rate Girls Can't Surf? I think we are. Do you mind if I jump in? Go for it. So Girls Can't Surf is an energising look at trailblazing women who are doing what they love and having a blast doing it. But it's also an important issue from an angle that not everyone will be familiar with, but it's fun and it's funny and it's full of incredible women who just seem great to have a chat with, don't they? You just want to get yeah. to know them. I wanted it to dig a little deeper, but the lighter tone really works and it's 
opening your eyes in an entertaining way. So I'm going to give Girls Can't Surf four popcorn kernels. I love that. I love that wrap up. That rating so, so deserved. Well, Girls Can't Surf is about the game of survival and so beautifully recounts these women's experience and memorable moments throughout their surfing careers. I found myself cheering in my seat, wanting these women to succeed despite them being constantly knocked down. The film so beautifully captures their impact and legacy on the sport and I could not recommend this highly enough. I am rating Girls Can't Surf 4.5 popcorn kernels. So Girls Can't Surf is in cinemas now. Make sure you check it out. Absolutely. Highly recommend. Now let's move on to Crisis, Tim. Yes, shall we? Let's uh, let's dig into this film. Crisis follows three stories linked by the world of opioids. A drug trafficker arranging a multi-cartel smuggling operation between Canada and the US. An architect recovering from an oxycodone addiction, looking for the truth behind her son's involvement with narcotics. And a university researcher struggling with his morals after being contracted by a major pharmaceutical company to run experiments on a new non-addictive painkiller before it hits the market. Crisis is written and directed by Nicholas Jarecki. This is his second feature after Arbitrage. And Crisis is an ensemble drama, so it's a quite long, lengthy list of actors, but here's the the top-billed cast. Mm. So we've got Gary Oldman, Army Hammer, Evangeline Lilly, Greg Kinnear, Michelle Rodriguez is in it, Luke Evans, throw Lily Rose Depp as well. So it's a, an incredible cast uh, at, at face value, isn't it? Yeah, but did you feel the cast was overstuffed? Oh, it was overstuffed. I think, jumping straight into it, too mm. many subplots. So yeah. many subplots. Oh. Bam, yeah. onto the next. Bam, onto the next. And yeah, crazy. They're balancing so many that there's just no time to settle on any. Yeah, yeah. Really, really unsettled pacing of this film, wasn't it? And I just don't think it was uh, It was successful in any way in weaving them in. Mm. I found Gary Oldman's subplot was one of the most confusing, pointless ones that we go through in this film, waiting for, like, all the worlds to collide. Sorry, just to explain, Gary Oldman is the professor, yeah? He's the professor that's um, struggling with his morals and whether he goes up against Big Pharma or whether he hides his results that the new painkiller is actually addictive. It could have been its own separate film, I think. It didn't really Mm. have a place in this... uh, like ensemble drama with multiple subplots. What did you think? I, I think it fit, but yeah, I think they could have narrowed the focus and maybe mm. made his character more central and Evangeline Lilly's character as the mother who's trying to find out what happens to her son. I mean, mm. she was mesmerising in her performance. I loved her performance, but I didn't care about her story. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, neither did I. I was... um Like, I cared about the character, but I didn't care about the storyline. Oh, okay, so I thought she was good, I agree, but, mm. like, what on earth was she doing? She was, like, so rogue. Like, why wasn't she seeking police help? And I feel like her subplot just fell into these access of gaining, like, convenience around phones and tracking and information and shady underground Canadians. And did she have, like, this secret background in espionage? Like, I actually just didn't understand who she was and how she ended up just falling into all these scenarios. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of leaps of convenience that happen throughout the story. And I wonder, is that down to the editing or is that the story? I think it's a combination of terrible dialogue 
Oof. Uh, editing, absolutely. Yeah, off. Did you say off about the dialogue? Yeah, and also we're going to come <laughs> back to this when you're finished, but yeah. the character of Mother, who's this drug kingpin, whose nickname <laughs> is Mother, it was utterly ridiculous. Every time they used, they used the word so much and I thought, okay, we get it. His nickname's Mother. Stop saying the word Mother. Yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> and also, just, just on Mother... Yeah. We it, they didn't establish that he was the drug lord and he was a man, and so when they were talking about the the drug runners who had died, you know the kids, I thought mm. they were talking about Evangelines <laughs> as the mother. So it took me a while to figure out who the fuck mother was, and it wasn't her as an actual mother. So I think they just failed in setting the right yeah. context of yeah. these subplots. It was very confusing. <laughs> there was a technique in the editing that I want to talk about. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it as much as I did, but I started to notice it a lot towards the end and it became really distracting where there's this style of the dialogue playing over the actions but being out of sync. Did you notice that? So like maybe two people would come into a room and the dialogue would be talking and then the action would catch up to the talking. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting technique. But then it just got used so much and I was like, can you just have them walk into a room saying what they're saying at the same time. (laughs) Also, it was like an overlap of the dialogue starting on the vision of the last scene and then catching up. Is that what you mean? No, no. So like Gary Oldman and Greg Kinnear, for example, walk into a room and they're doing some stuff in a room, but the dialogue that's Mm. playing over it is something that happens a few minutes down the track. Oh, what? I didn't notice that You didn't notice that? Oh. You won't be able to unsee it now if you ever watch that movie again. I don't think I will ever watch this movie again. Look, (laughs) fair enough. Look, it's a technique, okay, but I just felt it was overused. Mm. Can we talk about Oldman and Kinnear and Mm. their relationship? Mm. Now, the conversations they kept having annoyed me because every time they had a conversation, they kept going around and around and around in circles. And the characters were flip-flopping all over the place. Oh, my God. Like, yes, their ethics and morals were just like, you just couldn't keep up with where Gary Oldman's head was at. And it was just like, fucking just make a decision. Like, I don't care about this whole (laughs) subplot, just move on. But yeah, no, their conversations, Gary Oldman and Kinnear, they just kept repeating themselves. And I think they had the same goddamn conversation four times. And I was like, move on. Even right at the end, they kept discussing the same thing. It was incredibly frustrating and pointless. So that time could have been better spent fleshing out other things. Yeah, I mean, it could have been uh, more time fleshing out Army Hammer's relationship with his drug-addicted sister. It could have been they could have spent more time in actually establishing a link between Evangeline Lilly's character and her son. There was just very fleeting moment at the beginning of the Mm. film. You never saw any interaction with them. So I struggled to then, of course, like I can empathise with a mother whose son has been has Mm. been killed, Mm. uh, but you never got a sense of what their relationship was like. You never kind of got a real sense of Gary Oldman and what his career had been like and all these sort of like uh, skeletons in his closet that they just kept alluding to. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. There's a cast of thousands in Crisis, but I couldn't tell you much about the characters. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't even tell you half their names either, which is a real problem, (laughs) I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of emotion missing from this, but some of the actors being, you know, the wonderful performers that they are, Gary Oldman, Evangeline Lilly, just to mm. name a couple, Greg Kinnear as well. I mean, they're doing a lot with their undercooked characters. Yes, I think they are. You can definitely tell and and appreciate the experience that they bring to their performance, but they just had 
uh, editing that worked against them, direction in a script mm. and character development that just wasn't there for them to really um, kind of project and propel the narrative any more than they could have. Do you want another spatial awareness bugbear I have, Lee, with these kind of things? I'm so glad you bring this up because I have a different one and I was afraid to go off on a tangent, but please tell me. Okay, well, uh, I would be impressed if we have the same one, but I'm totally here to uh, listen yeah. to yours as well. So for me, it's around surveillance, right? So right. how do people not notice or realise cars following them <laughs> or literally sitting right there in the same space yep. or even a person pointing a gun at them, like in their peripheral goddamn motherfucking vision. My goodness, it seems that all the characters in this movie were fucking blind. Yeah. It's just they just didn't see just the most obvious things that were happening around them. I know I know the moments you're talking about there and I completely agree yes. that jumped out at me as well. But the one thing I have to point out, okay, can you answer this question for me? Why is it in all of these kind of movies when someone is shot at point blank range and they're wearing a vest, they feel the need to open the vest and show you they're wearing a vest. Like, we can tell you're wearing a vest because you woke up and there's no blood. You don't need to open it and feel the bullet and be like, oh, yeah, it hit my vest. What were they they expecting? (laughs) It was to go, oh, my God, thank God he was wearing a bulletproof vest. It's like, yeah, he is not. Like flatlined. That's how we know. Oh, I totally yeah. agree. Fuck, it's like that it's was like annoying. hitting the audience over the head with it. Hey, look, I'm wearing a vest. Look, you might as well get up and walk up to the camera and be like, "Look, I'm wearing a vest." <laughs> oh, I would have been here for that moment, actually. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Okay, I think we should just cut crisis off at the knees, shouldn't we? Let's just move on. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. So. Lee, what's in a name? This film was a crisis in storytelling where nothing made sense or came together well at all. We were given characters we knew nothing about nor learnt much about along the way, so their plights were as dead to me as those who suffered a grim fate in the red snow. The script and dialogue were woeful, and it was just another lacklustre ensemble drama they got wrong, leaving you wondering, how on earth did these actors sign on to this? I'm going to give Crisis one and a half popcorn kernels. Ooh. Well, you took <laughs> you took my pun there, Tim, but um, Crisis felt like a movie in crisis. A lot of wasted <laughs> talent in a convoluted storyline about a topic that could have could have really reinvigorated this style of movie that Steven Soderbergh's Traffic did so well back in the 90s. Yes. You know, that thing about drug trade operation told through different stakeholders. I mean, that was weaved together so well and it could have really just, you know, gained momentum for this kind of story again. It was well paced, I thought, uh, with some excellent performances despite the underwritten parts. But I'm going to give Crisis two popcorn kernels. There we go. Crisis is in cinemas from March 18. Let's move on to news, Tim. Let's shake off crisis and move on to the news. Let's start with the fabulous image that Lady Gaga shared of herself and co-star Adam Driver from the set of Ridley Scott's House of Gucci movie. Driver plays Italian fashion heir Maurizio Gucci with Lady Gaga as Maurizio's ex-wife Patrizia Reggiani. 
who was dubbed the Black Widow after being convicted of plotting his murder in 1995. The internet is going crazy for mm. these images at the moment, aren't they? They look fabulous. Now, the story is based on Sarah Gay Forden's book, The House of Gucci, a sensational story of murder, madness, glamour and greed. And wasn't it a glamorous image? They look like they're at some ski chalet with these lovely furry hats and the white snowsuits. So fashionable. So fashionable. It almost looks like an era in Lady Gaga's career as well. Like she would wear those clothes and release an <laughs> album and it'd be all about, you yeah. know, this sort of uh, dialogue. But uh, yeah, I love it. It's, it's a brilliant image. Brilliant yeah. image. Can't wait to see this movie. Now, Michael B. Jordan will pull double duty as star and director of Creed 3, which is expected in cinemas in late 2022. This is the star's uh, directorial debut, Lee. It is. And Jordan released a statement with the announcement saying, directing has always been an aspiration, but the timing had to be right. Creed 3 is that moment. A time in my life where I've grown more sure of who I am, holding agency in my own story, maturing personally, growing professionally and learning from the greats like Ryan Coogler and most recently Denzel Washington and other top tier directors I respect. Yeah, he's worked with quite a lot of incredible creative so i think mm. he's got a lot of uh, mentor support behind him to to bring his first directorial debut to the screen this feels like a good move yeah i think it's a great move there's a lot of critical acclaim about the creed series obviously a, a spin-off of the rocky balboa franchise mm. uh, and it makes sense doesn't it that he would take on this additional mantle for the third mm. innings in in this story in the rocky rocky franchise Kenneth Branagh has been hired to direct the upcoming Bee Gees biopic for Paramount. And Ben Elton is currently writing the draft script with Bee Gees member Barry Gibb very involved as executive producer. That's promising. That's promising. That's really good when, when that's the case. But it's made me think with this piece of news, like, oh, we haven't got a Bee Gees biopic before? Like, mm. they've been around for so long. It seems silly that it's only happening now. But I'm really excited about this. I mean, that's jumping on the back of Rocketman and Bohemian Rhapsody and the appetite that people seem to have for these musical biopics and Madonna doing her own one as well. Oh, that's right. I forgot about Madonna. We've spoken about that before, haven't we? Yeah. And Diablo Cody co-writing it with her, I think. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm excited for that project too. There's certainly a trend about Tinseltown, that's for sure. Now, HBO Max did a bit of a boo-boo this week, didn't they, Tim? <laughs> Big boo-boo. I fucking love this. <laughs> Um, so HBO Max accidentally, and I say accidentally, you know, in mm. inverted commas here, because I reckon this is 100% a publicity stunt. I don't know what you think. Mm. But they made Zack Snyder's Justice League available to customers on their platform who thought they were about to watch the new Tom and Jerry mm. film. The error was quickly resolved, but with some getting to watch the first hour of this four-hour epic, you know, redo of the 2017 critical and commercial bomb that was Justice mm. League. Uh, crazy. What do you, do you think this is a publicity stunt, Lee? I'm curious. Oh, it could have been, but would you pick Tom and Jerry to put it in? Well, I mean, that's what makes this so perfect. Yeah. Like, I just don't see how it, it's just inconceivable how this could happen by accident. Oh. Uh, and I think because it's Tom and Jerry, it's like, oh, that's so weird. It's an animated family film and you're putting this dark comic book mm. uh, film in its place. I just think it's been done on purpose. If it wasn't done on purpose, then the person who found it and put it on social media is going to be the target of a very angry fandom. You ruined it. <laughs> the film is released on March 18 here in Australia and it's going to be available on Binge. 
All four hours of it. Yes. All four hours. Oh, gee. Buckle up. Buckle down. Mm. We're in for a bit of a ride. Now we've got some Tony Collette news, Lee. Love a bit of Tony Collette news. She's going to make her directorial debut by adapting a New York best-selling novel called Writers and Lovers from author Lily King. Collette will also produce and co-write the film. The story follows Casey Peabody, an underemployed aspiring novelist in 1990s Boston, whose world is rocked by a recent love affair and her mother's sudden death. Her life becomes more complicated as she then falls for two very different men at the same time. Very interesting story. This is another surprising person who I thought would have made her directorial debut before now because she's incredibly talented. She knows her stuff. She's been around forever. Like, very excited for this. Academy Award nominated actress Tony Collette. Have you ever seen United States of Tara, that TV series from a couple of years back? I've seen bits of it, but no, I haven't seen the whole thing. But yeah, she was incredible. Oh, that is extraordinary. That was executive produced by Steven Spielberg. So the people in the biz that she's worked with over her decades, mm. decades long career is extraordinary. And yeah, I'm surprised too, but I think she'll bring a really unique perspective in the director's chair because she has so much experience behind her and she's yeah. so respected. Um, I'm really looking forward to, to this production. Me too. And I think that wraps up another episode of Popcorn Podcast. Tim, what do you think? I think we are done and dusted for another week. Jam-packed, as always. Love it. Yep. So we reviewed (laughs) Girls Can't Surf, which is in cinemas now, and Crisis, which is coming to Australian cinemas on March 18. So, guys, as always, thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next time. If you enjoy our episodes, head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. While you're there, we would love you to rate us and leave a review. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Alexa, and where all good podcasts are found.